Welcome to Ounce of Prevention, a podcast about current trends in Connecticut law and what they might have to do with you. In each episode, we'll focus on a specific legal issue and how it can impact your everyday life. The goal of the podcast is to educate and inspire our listeners to harness the law to make life just a little bit easier. I'm your host, Tim Herring. I'm an attorney at the firm of Chipman Mizuko Emerson LLC with offices in Danbury and Southbury, Connecticut. Welcome to the Ounce of Prevention podcast. I'm your host, Tim Herring, and I'm joined this week by Fran Penarola, an attorney in the Danbury office. Welcome to the podcast, Fran. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay. Well, I've been uh, practicing law for over 40 years now. I uh, live in Newtown. When I began the practice of law, I did a little bit of everything. But over the past decade or two, I've tended to specialize in business law, commercial real estate, and more recently, trademark and copyright, which I find to be a fun, exciting, and interesting area of law to practice in. And I wanted to ask you, what led you to get involved in those practice areas? Was it a natural offshoot of your business work? Yes. I mean, I, uh, it really started with the need of of a particular client. They wanted to get a trademark. They were unhappy with the services that they were getting from their present intellectual property counsel and asked me to get involved. And I did. And I was successful for them. And that sort of got the got the ball rolling. And I found that I liked the intellectual challenge of it. So why don't why don't we start off kind of at a thirty thousand foot level? Trademarks and copyrights are known as as IP or intellectual property, right? Right. And why are they valuable to a business? Well, they're valuable to a business because certainly a trademark typically represents the brand that a business has. You know, if you think of if you think of Nike, Nike is a great example when you're talking about trademarks. The the word Nike is a trademark for that company for athletic footwear, clothes, and other things. Uh, and that's what's called a word mark. In addition, Nike has the swoosh, sort of curved uh, shaped thing. It looks a little bit like Amazon's smile, uh, but that swoosh is also a, a logo, uh, another form of trademark for uh, Nike. And it also has a trademark in the slogan, just do it. This goes to show that you know, almost anything can serve as a trademark. As far as copyright goes, copyright protects the expression of an idea. It doesn't really protect the idea itself. You know, you and I can have uh, the same idea for a story that we want to write, and the fact that you write it first and, and I come second doesn't mean that I have violated your copyright, but I cannot use, you know, the same words. There are restrictions on the number of characters, and, and copyright is value. And both of these forms of, of intellectual property you know, can last for a long time. A trademark, frankly, as long as a company or an individual is using it as a trademark, can last forever. Copyright, typically, you know, you're looking at probably about 120 years. And I can tell you now, Tim, I'm not worried about uh, my copyright and stuff 120 years from now. Well, if you eat right and you exercise, <laughs> right. You, when you were talking about Nike, you know, you have the swoosh 
which is a, a you know a, a mark and then yep. a word but a sound can also be a trademark right a sound can be a trademark. I don't know whether your listeners are, uh, are old enough to remember the uh, NBC chimes, but those are certainly a trademark. Uh, and there are probably others that come to, to mind. I'm thinking of Intel Inside, you know, those commercials where you hear yep. the. Yep. So really anything that denotes source, right? Yeah. And, in, you know, in fact, color is been held to be a trademark. Anybody who has used Corning fiberglass uh, insulation, that pink color is a trademark of the company, as is the blue for Tiffany's. Let's say a business has been using um, a certain mark, and that mark has developed, well, people know what it is in the community. You know, they provide a service. So what can that company do to protect that mark from another company trying to basically capitalize on it. Sure. You know, the important thing to know about trademarks is that they are that they are common law rights. They and they depend on uh, use in commerce. And, you know, if I started using a particular word or phrase 20 years ago to sort of advertise or promote my my legal practice, I have a common law trademark in it. What I can do to give additional protection to that trademark is to uh, register it with the uh, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, or USPTO, and that can give me some enhanced rights. The filing by itself can deter a uh, a competitor from using or, or promoting a name that's similar to yours. The way lots of business these days is, is done on the internet, you know, you want your brand, the one that you've spent 20 years building, you know, to come up first and and to be protected. When you register a trademark at the Patent and Trademark Office, that office, you know, sort of searches its own database of both registered trademarks and ones that have been applied for to determine whether or not it thinks that it finds a another mark that, ahead of you that is either that is that is likely to cause confusion for the most part you know in the eyes of the beholder but most of the time it's it's pretty apparent but again filing a, a registered trademark can give you some um, adequate uh, or some some better protection there again trademarks once they're registered provide uh, nationwide protection which is good if you're going to have a product uh, or a service that's going to go nationwide. I mean, let's say you've got this great concept for a restaurant that you think you can franchise uh, and become the next Subway, which, you know, by the way, is a registered trademark for sandwich shops. I think it's important in those circumstances to file for federal registration because uh, the fact that I, if I just open a Subway store or, you know, a sub shop in uh, in Danbury, Connecticut, with a catchy name, and don't do anything, somebody likely in Omaha, Nebraska, or San Francisco, California, can pretty much open the same shop, and nobody's going to find any infringement. But if I have a, a, a registered trademark, you know, I can protect that. I could, I could stop them um, from using it. I've also learned over the years that Amazon, which is a platform for lots of people, not just its own goods, but I think more than 50% of the goods that are sold on Amazon are sold by 
third parties, you really need a registered trademark to get all the benefits of Amazon's platform. So there are lots of reasons why getting a, a registration is uh, is a good idea. Right. Have you ever seen a situation where company A has used a trademark, you know, in its business for for say 20 years, but they never registered it. And then a company comes along and registers what appears to be a confusing mark because the US Patent and Trademark Office doesn't have a record of company A doing it. Have you ever seen that happen? I have seen that happen. In fact, I'm sorry to say I've been involved in a case where that was really exactly the case. I won't go into the won't go into names, but you know, we we were able to get a, a federal registration for a particular company in a particular industry. You know, we'd done a search. We came across the competitor in a uh, in a common law search, but made the determination based on what we could find that there really, really was unlikely to be a conflict. We went ahead and uh, got a federal registration. And at some point in time, the, the other party discovered our registration, filed an action to cancel it. And there were some negotiations going back and forth because lots of times disputes like this can get resolved between the parties. And I've done that on, on multiple occasions. But this case was hard-headed people on both sides. And ultimately, the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board, which is kind of like the appellate level and trial court level of the Trademark Office, found in favor of the competitor and canceled our registration, and they went on to get their own. Let me go through the process when you file a trademark, just because it'll set the stage. You file a trademark. Uh, application with the USPTO, and it's pretty much all done online, and you don't hear anything for three months because that's just the nature of the system in terms of the backlog. At the three-month level, you usually hear one of three things. A, no problem, we're going to proceed and forward this mark onto publication, and we'll get to that in a minute. Second, they may find that there's some tweaking that needs to be of the application. They they want you to disclaim certain things. They want to know whether you're really claiming color or not. And those are usually handled, you know, again, via email. And the third thing is they say, listen, we think we're going to reject this because we think there's a likelihood of confusion with another trademark, either registered or that applied before you. And frankly, I'm involved in one of those cases right now where we filed a trademark application a week. You know, we did a search, didn't find anything. We filed the application, and it turned out that a week before we filed our application, and one that had not yet hit the system, another company filed a trademark application essentially for the same mark. However, in what we believe is a substantially different area, because you can have, you can use the same trademark in many different industries, and there's no conflict. I could have, you know, Acme Cars and I could have Acme soup, and nobody's gonna say that there's a likelihood of confusion that the person making the car is the same as the person selling the soup. So, but Although in this that case, does sound like a great business synergy, I'm telling you. Well, ask, the, right ask, Road, ask Roadrunner. I mean, Roadrunner yeah. <laughs> probably has Acme everything. But That's be, true. But, you know, Wiley Coyote, I should say. 
But anyway, in the case that I just mentioned, we're in the process of negotiating a coexistence agreement where, you know, we will agree with the other side that we won't step on their toes and they won't step on our toes, that we, we both agree that there's no likelihood of confusion and that in the event somebody comes looking for their goods at our company, we'll refer them to them, to them and, and vice versa. If they get somebody looking for what our client sells, you know, they'll refer them to us. I've done that sort of dozens of times. And it's a good way of, of resolving disputes where, again, the, the USPTO found a problem that didn't really exist. And just to go back to what I said before about publication, once the USPTO examining attorney is happy with your trademark application, it will then get sent to publication. Again, that process takes a couple of months before it actually gets published, and it gets published in what's called the Trademark Gazette, which is not something that you will find at your local newsstand. But people in the know, you know, know where to find it essentially online. And what it does is it gives the world essentially 30 days to file an objection or an opposition to your application if, if they think that they have a, a trademark um, that's going to be uh, adversely affected by the mark that you have filed. And again, I'm in the process of, of negotiating over one of those client filed a, a trademark application for a particular sort of clothing design. It got, you know, got through the USPTO, it got sent for publication, and once it hit publication, a major uh, international seller of clothes and other things felt that this particular application by our client was going, might infringe its rights. And what they did was they asked for an extension of time to, to file an opposition, which then gives the parties some time to see if not if they can resolve it themselves. And you know, we're going back and forth with them as to what's reasonable in terms of restrictions. We've, you know, we certainly agreed not to use their their kinds of lettering, not to use their kinds of, you know, we're not selling their kinds of clothes. And uh so I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll be able to work something out because, frankly, prosecuting and defending an opposition is, is like a trial. It's an expensive, time-consuming process, and unfortunately, clients can spend twenty, thirty, or $40,000, and the small guy faced with that really has to think about, well, does he or she really want to keep this name or maybe consider rebranding? Coexistence agreements are often hammered out kind of in the shadow of a registration. And once an application's been filed and an objection has been raised by the USPTO, and, and again, I have situations where I file the trademark application, the USPTO cited another pre-existing registration as grounds for not permitting ours to go forward. And principle that you need to remember in trademark law is first in time, first in right. It's really not a, necessarily a race to registration as much as it is a race to be the first to actually use it in commerce. In our case, we were the first ones to use it in commerce. We clearly could establish that we'd been using this, this particular trademark in our area for 15 or 20 years. The other company had only been using it for three or four. And so I took the approach with the other company to say, hey, listen, 
you know, we have this trademark application. The USPTO has said we we think there's a likelihood of confusion with this other registration. So I said, listen, we could file an application to cancel your trademark, which is our right on the basis of our prior existing common law trademark, or we can work something out as far as uh, a coexistence agreement. They saw the light and uh, agreed that uh, it made sense to work something out. We worked out a coexistence agreement. There are very similar trademarks in related but not identical fields, and this day both are, uh, are registered. Now, I'm sure you've seen this too, where a company registers a trademark. Let's say a company does business in Delaware, and it's a really regional business, but they have a federal trademark registration. And then there's a company in Washington state that has a similar mark, but there's really no confusion because that's also a, just a ge geographically, it's kind of limited. Does that company in Delaware ever try to leverage its registration, even though there isn't any confusion? Because I assume even if you're registered to actually prevail in an action for infringement, you still have to show confusion. I mean, most, I think, trademark practitioners and most companies realize that they're really trying to do is protect their market, protect their brand. And if their brand really is a regional one that isn't going to be um, adversely impacted by competitor 2,000 miles away, you know, they're not going to bring an action. And, and similarly, I think courts are, are willing to take into consideration in deciding whether or not there is infringement, whether or not there really is any, you know, any possibility of confusion. I got a call today from a lawyer whose client owns a bakery, and they have, a, they have what they think is a nice name and a nice logo. And they were concerned that a company, another bakery, probably three hours or four hours away, was using essentially an identical name and a very similar looking logo. You know, neither had a, uh, a registered trademark. In fact, when I, uh, before I returned the lawyer's call, I checked with the USPTO and found that there were already pre-existing registrations which could conceivably have been cited against both of them. But as a practical matter, there really is no, and, and I, don't, I, I also checked their website to see whether or not either company was involved in, you know, in mail order sales, because if you sell mail order, you know, you potentially have a nationwide reach and neither right. was. So this was a situation where there really is nothing to, nothing that that, that, that client could do. I mean, they're just going to have to put up with the fact that there's another identically named bakery selling muffins and cookies and cakes, but right. they're three hours away. And people are, generally speaking, people are not going to drive three hours to get to get a cake, although it does remind me of, of when when I was in college, when I went to college in Middletown, Connecticut, sometimes Saturday night at 10 o'clock, we would leave Middletown to go to Chinatown to get Chinese food because they had really good Chinese food in Chinatown in New York. That's that's where you want to go for Chinese food. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say that uh, you represent a, a company that becomes aware of an infringing mark, a mark used by a competitor that's going to cause confusion. What's your first step? Well, the first step would be confirm the facts, determine exactly when our client first started using its trademark, and, and you know, and make sure that we were clearly had priority over the by the competitor. 
And then the first thing you do typically is send a cease and desist letter that basically says, I represent XYZ and it's come to our attention that you are using their registered trademark, uh, ABC, uh, to sell a similar good or service. And we want you to cease and desist from using it in 10 days, 30 days, whatever. And, you know, I've both been the, the sender of letters like that and had, have had clients be the recipient of those kinds of letters. And if you're, the, if you're the recipient, the first thing you really need to do is determine whether or not the, the cease and desist letter has, uh, has merit. And if it does, then what you try to do under those circumstances is make the best deal that you can for your client in terms of getting time to rebrand, because rebranding may mean changing product names, changing a website, changing other promotional material. And again, I've gotten clients six months or so to rebrand. And again, if you are on the the person, you know, if you're the lawyer sending the cease and desist letter, you know, you really need to, you know, have a serious conversation with your client about what more, how, how much farther they want to go. Uh, because again, you've got the right to bring an action and you can bring it, frankly, in federal court if you choose to. Not obligated to, and but it's really a question of what you know, and, and you should certainly maybe be able to get an injunction to stop them from using your mark, you know. But damages may be very speculative, and so you really have to determine whether or not the tens of thousands of dollars of cost that you're going to incur are ultimately going to be worth it. So it's a it's right. a business decision for a lot lots of most times. And as a litigator, I would imagine that. A decision on an injunction isn't going to come immediately. It's going to be at least a month, two, three away. And so a a six-month deal seems pretty reasonable because you never know if you're going to actually win the injunction, especially if it's going to put a competitor out of business. Correct. It's a good thing for those people who are thinking of starting a new business and, and, and building a brand to check ahead of time, to have your lawyer or or, or do it yourself, go to the USPTO. They have a pretty intuitive, most of the time, a search ability, a search function, and see whether or not somebody is already has, you know, a registered trademark similar to how you want to name your business, selling similar goods or services. And if that's the case, best to rethink your name. Because again, again with the internet, with Google, with all the other search engines out there, a name is important. Now I'm going to ask you a goofy question. Once in a while, I hear about famous people trying to trademark phrases that they've said, like in an interview or on their website. What's the deal with that? Well, again, they are essentially trying to cement the link between that phrase and their own persona, their own brand. I'm having a hard time thinking of an example of where somebody was successful in in doing it, but I'm sure they're out there. Then the question becomes is what value does it really have? You know, speaking of what value, I uh, a month ago, I, I checked the trademark office to see how many trademark applications had been filed with COVID in the name. And there were at that time about 35. I checked this morning and we're now up to 210. So people are looking to capitalize off uh, the current situation and are trying to uh, you know, stake a brand on COVID for, for whatever, whether it's T-shirts, whether it's 
services for disinfecting. They're all over the place. Right. Has the processing time for applications slowed down? I mean, you, you mentioned before, it's about three months before you hear back. Do you think that's going to be stretched out because of COVID? I mean, I, I think a lot of I, I, I would be surprised if it did much unless the because I think a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the trademark examining attorneys, you know, work remotely, work from home already. Uh, not everybody's going into Washington. There are, you know, there are very few paper filings these days. It's more expensive. It's more time consuming to tr- try to file something by paper. And it's easy for them to do it. I mean, they get assigned an application and they have stock searches that they will do. You know, they have sort of guidelines and algorithms that they look at in terms of whether or not there's a likelihood of confusion. And then we'll pass it on. And and sometimes you can convince them if they think there's a likelihood of confusion that they're wrong, which is always always a possibility. They are They are genuinely, I find them typically to be very very helpful. Lots of times you'll, you'll file an application and they'll contact you either by email or by phone and say, hey, listen, everything looks fine, except, you know, we think you need to do X, Y, and Z. And I can do one of two things. I can file an examiner's amendment if you consent to fix it, or I can send what's called an office action, tell you I'm going to reject it unless you fix it. And, uh, and, and invariably you agree to the examiner's amendment and it moves the process along. Well, that's good to hear that they're actually yeah. trying to, to help people out. They, they, they are. I mean, I think they, I think they genuinely do. Right. So. All right. So turning to copyright now, I copyright something by putting it in an envelope and mailing it to myself, right? That's how you do it. No, no, you, you actually copyright something by creating it by, you know, you, you write a brief, Tim, you have a you have a copyright in your written words and in, in the expression of, of, of the ideas. Again, copyright is both a common law right and a statutory right. I mean, and when I say common law, it is created, a copyright in something is created at the time of you create it. And so if I take go out my backyard right now after we have our, finish our, our conversation and take a photograph, I have a copyright in that photograph I just took. And, or if I write a song, which I can do as long as I don't try to sing it, I have a copyright in the song that I've written. And lots of things that you can, lots of things are, are the subject of copyright. I mean, not only are musical compositions, both the words and the music, but computer programs are the subject of copyright, books, essays, paintings, uh, movies, the script for the movie. Having a copyright in something carries a bundle of rights along with it. So why take the step of registering it? First of all, in order to in order to enforce your right that that you have to prevent somebody from infringing your copyright, you really do need to register it because that opens up a couple of things. First of all, it allows you to sue in federal court. Second of all, it allows you to recover attorney's fees if you're successful. And third, it allows for the possibility or the likelihood of statutory damages, whether or not you can prove actual damages for the infringement. And statutory damages 
for an infringement can you know run up to $150,000. And the typical experiences I've had with with copywriter, there are really two. One is the client who has written something, has a design for something, and wants to get a copyright in it. After telling them that they already have a copyright in it by creating it, then let them know about how you can register a copyright with, well, it's with the Library of Congress, and you know their website is copyright.gov. And again, it's a fairly intuitive process, and there are different applications depending on the different type of item or composition that you want copyrighted. I think the filing fee is currently $45. So go ahead and you file the copyright. And again, it takes a few months before the registration comes through. But once you have that registration, um, you have the ability to uh, enforce it. So that's one, one circumstance where, again, somebody, whether they want to copyright their website, they want to copyright their brochure, a book, whatever. The other common occurrence is where somebody contacts us and who has gotten a either a nasty letter or the threat of a lawsuit from somebody claiming a copyright infringement. People have the, the habit of when they are creating a website sometimes or a brochure, going onto the internet, finding a nice looking picture, they can cut it, they can paste it, and they think, wow, that's easy. If I can do it, if it's on the internet, it must be free. And so they use it on their website, and six months later, they get a nasty letter from some lawyer basically saying, uh, our client has a registered copyright in that picture of flowers that you use on your website. Here's a copy of the picture. Here's the registration number. And, you know, unless you pay us $7,500, we're going to file federal court action and recover uh, not only statutory damages, but legal fees. In those circumstances, what you typically do is, first of all, verify that they, in fact, have a registered copyright, which invariably they do. And there are there are lawyers and law firms who, who sort of do this for a living in terms of chasing after, for the most part, innocent copyright misusers to basically get settlements out of them. And it's this whole industry has been made much easier by the fact that there are software programs that are out there that will, you load in the photographs, whatever that you have a copyright in, you know, into a database, and the software program sends out bots that uh, search and scour the internet for uh, misuse uh, of the uh, copyrighted images. And, you know, the sad thing is, is lots of times someone could have bought a license to use uh, the photograph. The photographer will have been overjoyed to sell a license for a hundred bucks forever or for five years or whatever it is, versus running the risk of uh, getting sued for a copyright infringement. And I've had right. I've had dozens of cases where this has been the case. Yes, I I've gotten a few of those calls over the years too, and it's a trap for the unwary. It really is people who had no intent to steal. Sure, not at all. And, and in fact, you know, I, I again this this past summer I, I had a, a situation where a client contacted me for a particular website selling herb type remedies and things. You know, used photographs of flowers to promote them, and she'd been contacted by somebody 
by a lawyer on behalf of of a photographer whose flower that she had used. And without going into the particular species of flowers, you and I could have gone out in our yard and taken pretty much the identical photograph. So there doesn't necessarily have to be any great, you know, artistic quality to the to the image in which a person has a copyright. But if it is the identical photograph that someone has taken and registered with the copyright office, it's kind of like they gotcha. Let me ask you a question. How about fair use? I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but what if someone is using a protected image for educational or non-commercial uses? That is, uh, that's an, uh, yes. I mean, fair use, if, in, and, I, and again, I have a, I didn't get too involved, but I had a situation uh, come up where a grad student in the process of doing his thesis used a copyrighted image, you know, to explain something. And that was basically considered, I think, by by him and by the academic institution where he was getting his master's to be a fair use. He then went on when he was looking for a job and had his own website to post his thesis. Well, he got contacted by the copyright holder of the image that he used in his thesis, basically saying, well, you know, now you're using it for commercial purposes. And therefore, unless you pay us, in this case, it was like 500 bucks. We're going to sue you for infringement. It really was no longer a question. For the purely academic, it was fair use. For the use that he was making of it, you know, he might have had good argument, but it wasn't worth being sued for. So I think right, he paid. Right. I told him to make right. the best deal possible. <laughs> right. Uh, so let's say that I'm a very good, I play a mean acoustic guitar. And, you know, a few times a month I travel around to bars and I play cover songs. I cover famous songs that I'm sure are copyrighted. And I get you know, a couple hundred bucks uh, a night. Can I get sued for copyright infringement? Theoretically, you can, in the sense that one of the rights that a copyright holder of a song has in either the lyrics or the music, you know, is the exclusive right to perform it publicly. Theoretically, you are violating uh, that person's copyright. Now, the music industry in particular has sort of developed a system to you know, protect artists, composers in those situations. There are two big ones. One is called ASCAP. I think the other is BMI. But they are essentially artists' rights organizations in bars and restaurants and gyms and dance studios that are using music as part of their business end up having to pay sort of a monthly fee to uh, these organizations. And they, in turn, will then sort of divvy that up among the artists, you know, with some magic formula. And let's put it this way. If I wrote a song and recorded it and got a copyright in it, and Taylor Swift did the same thing, and both of our songs were being played in different places, she would be getting a much bigger share of, of the money that BMI or ASCAP was uh, collecting than I would. Gotcha. I see. So if, if bars and restaurants have paid for a license, then they're covered should a performer come in and perform. Correct. A Correct. Song. Gotcha. Makes yeah. a lot of sense. Okay. Well, is there anything else, any kind of practical pointers on copyright that you think 
our listeners should be aware of? A, if you're going to use, you know, if you're going to use photographs, take them yourself. Two, if you are having a professional photographer take photographs, even photographs of you uh, that you want to be able to subsequently use on your website, in brochures or whatever it is, you need to make sure that you get, you know, an assignment or a license from the photographer to be able to use that image. Because even though it's a picture of your pretty face, Tim, um, the photographer has the copyright in the image he or she took of you. And so you want to be sure that you get a license. If you are the employer of somebody, if somebody is creating something for you while they are your employee and you are paying them for it, you know, the employer under those circumstances can claim the copyright in what's being created. On the other hand, if I hire somebody as an independent contractor to create something for me, one of the important things I, you know, you need to do is get an assignment of that uh, contractor's uh, copyright in whatever, you know, he or she is creating, and that can be particularly important in the in the software field. If you have somebody who is writing code for you, uh, you've got a catchy idea, you've got a great idea for an app, you've got the concept, you know how it, you know, you know what it wants to work, you know what function it needs to have, you just don't have the coding skills to make it happen, and you hire Joe College Kid to write it for you, you want to be sure that Joe College Kid assigns the copyright in what he's created to you, because generally speaking, absent an assignment, Joe's got the right to use that code for whatever he wants. He may not be able to stop you from using it because you paid for it, but you in turn could not stop him from going to a competitor or whatever, or doing it or using that code uh, himself in his own application. So those are That's sort an important of key thing. copyright tips. Yep. Right. So have you created those assignment documents for clients? Yep. I have created I have created assignment documents for clients. Uh, so that would apply even in the context of an employer-employee relationship, not just a, a business independent contractor relationship. Usually in, you know, most employment agreements that I've been involved in either preparing or reviewing, you know, there is a particular section where the, the contract will say any patentable, copyrightable, trademarkable things that are created on the job or relate to the job while you're employed belong to the employer. And, uh, you know, if necessary, and sometimes it, there's just a flat out assignment in the document itself, whereby the, the person signing assigns whatever rights they have. So it's both belt and suspenders. You're basically saying, yeah, I own it. And by the way, if I don't own it, you're assigning it to me. And, right. and that's the best way to go if you're an employer. All right. Well, okay. I think we've covered a lot of ground. And I think this is, uh, you, you've given a lot of important information. I've learned a lot personally. Good. And uh, hopefully our listeners have too. So uh, thanks for joining me today, Fran. Uh, and, thank you, Tim. Uh, it's been my pleasure. All right. And I'll, I'll have you back soon to talk about some other topics, I'm sure. Sounds good. So. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of Ounce of Prevention, and we'll see you next time around. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Ounce of Prevention podcast. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic, please visit our website at www.danburylaw.com 
or call us directly at 203-744-1929. So you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcatcher. This podcast is not legal advice and is for informational and educational purposes only.